1: Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Some quotes are meant to be poetic. Once upon a midnight dreary. And some quotes save your money at elephant our quotes save people hundreds of dollars a year on auto insurance more care less cost discover the elephant difference at elephant.com this is your weekly baseball power hour and in-depth in-your-face look at the nationals orioles and major league baseball See you chin music with al Galdi on the team 980 and the team 980 app
0: we had uh, several discussions uh, with, with teams about uh, about a, a whole litany of our players. Uh, Bryce was one of them. Uh, several teams had more than passing interest. Uh, we, uh, we did our due diligence on Bryce and, and five or six other of our, uh, of our players and couldn't come up with a, a deal that made sense for us for the 2018 season and beyond.
1: And away we go, Nationals President of Baseball Operations and General Manager Mike Rizzo on Tuesday. The Nats basically standing pat at that non-waiver trade deadline. Is that something that they're going to come to regret? Or maybe, just maybe, is that going to prove to be the exact right thing to have done? Good morning. Happy Saturday, however you are with us. We do say good morning. We do say thank you. 980 AM, the Team 980 app, the theteam980.com. Also, audio now, a free phone number. Just dial 7124321980 as we like to say this is the only year round Nationals and Orioles radio show in the DMV. So rain, rain, go away. Can we start with that? Is it ever going to stop raining around here? I know we are supposed to dry out today, but I'll believe it when I see it. No Nationals game last night, thanks to the rain. So uh, game two of that uh, four game set with Cincinnati postponed due to the rain. And so we have some room this morning actually to get into what has been an oh so eventful last seven days for the Nats. I mean, seriously, this has been one of the more eventful, news-filled weeks I can ever remember for this ball club. Whether you're talking about games on the field, you're talking about guys maybe being traded, guys who were traded, uh, guys who were DFA'd, guys who had offensive tweets that were uh, publicized years later. Like, all kinds of things happened this week if you're a Nats fan. I'll get into a lot of what went down in just a little bit. I also do want to talk some Orioles with you on the show today because for the first time in a long time, I do believe that there's actual reason for hope if you're an O's fan, and I'll get into that a little bit later on. But let's start with the Nats, uh, who did lose ground in the standings last night. Let's point that out. National League East leading Philadelphia beat Miami 5-1, so the Nats now are five and a half games behind the Phillies. And Atlanta won its fifth straight 2-1 at the Mets, so the Nats now are five games behind the Braves. For the NL second wild card spot, the Nats are 55 and 53, 108 games into the 162, so 54 games to make up either of those deficits. Uh Impossible, of course not. You know, five and a half out in the division, five out in the second wild card uh, race spot. You can you can make that up. No no question about that. But is making up either deficit likely? I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. Uh, We do know this. Doing so requires taking care of business against a team like the Reds. And this series, to me, is minimum three out of four. Nats Cincinnati at Nationals Park. That is a minimum win three out of four series if you are the Nats. The Nats have got to win at least three out of four against the Reds. And truthfully, really could use a four-game sweep. I mean, it's hard to hold any team to the standard of you must execute a four-game sweep. But you know that the Reds manager, the former Nats manager, Jim Riggleman, would like nothing more than to do the Nats dirty this weekend. The Nats, to me, have got to beat up on a bad team like the Reds right here. And it's interesting to me who the Nats are starting over the final three games of this series. Three guys who really represent the decline in the Nats starting pitching over the last few months. What are the Nats going to get from these guys over these final 54 games? Of the regular season. So game one of the doubleheader this afternoon at 105. Gio Gonzalez versus Anthony Desclafani. Uh, Gio is coming off his best start in two months. Let's make that clear. A week ago tonight, last Saturday night, that 2 1, 10 inning loss at Miami. Uh, don't blame Gio for that. Gio had his best start in two months. One run in seven innings on three singles and four walks. Now the four walks bothered you. Gio continues to walk the ballpark, and in fact, if you remember that game, he began the bottom of the fourth by issuing three consecutive walks. But Gio, to his credit, gave up just the one run in that inning, and that was it. That really was one of the great shames of that loss last Saturday night. Gio had his best outing since May 28th, and yet you still didn't win. Like, you wasted a near gem from Gio. There are still reasons to worry about Gio. You know, if you dig deeper on that outing last Saturday night, 114 pitches, just 67 Went for strikes, but still, the run prevention was there, and that, in a lot of ways, was the G.O. of last regular season. Remember, Dusty Baker would call Geo Houdini because he'd put guys on base, but get out of those circumstances unscathed or relatively unscathed. That was the geo on display a week ago tonight. We shall see what we get this afternoon. Game two of uh, the doubleheader with the Reds is tonight at 7.05. Jeremy Hellickson going to be taking on the former Met, Matt Harvey. We last saw Helixson last Sunday afternoon. That was that 5 nothing loss at the Marlins. And Jeremy struggled for a fourth time in six starts since coming back from that right hamstring strain. I mean, we all remember how good he was before that injury. You know, he wouldn't last long, but what he gave you was good. You know, five runs, one inning, five scoreless innings, that kind of thing. Well, in that outing last Sunday afternoon, you're looking at five runs, three earned, and four and two-thirds innings. He gave up a double. He gave up seven singles. He gave up a hit-by-pitch. And what really killed you about that outing for Jeremy, all five runs came with two outs. So what kind of a helix are the Nats going to be getting here moving forward? And then game four against the Reds is Sunday afternoon at one thirty-five. Tanner Roark versus Luis Castillo. And how about Tanner lately? Tanner has been tremendous over his last two starts. Has Tanner Roark turned the corner here? You know, you go back to that 25-4 route, of the Mets this past Tuesday night, as incredible as the Nets offense was in that game, you could argue the most encouraging thing was Tanner, a second consecutive very good outing. If you recall, uh, that 7-3 win at Milwaukee July 25th, that was a good outing number one, eight scoreless innings, 11 strikeouts. Tanner this past Tuesday night, one run in seven innings on seven strikeouts versus just four hits and no walks. You love seeing this from Tanner off him having struggled in eight of his previous 10 appearances. I mean, he was in some kind of rut there. Maybe just maybe he's coming out of it here. Back-to-back, really good outings. He's striking guys out. You know, Tanner Roark is not known as a strikeout pitcher, but you look at it, 18 strikeouts over his last 15 innings. That's terrific. And uh, also for Tanner, by the way, on Tuesday night, he got in on the offensive fun. He had a two-out first pitch, three-run double in that that seven-run first. And he had a single as well. So these final three games here against the Reds, important not just from a standpoint of the Nats needing to pile up wins, but also from a standpoint of where this rotation is headed down the stretch. As I have said, it's been Max Scherzer and four question marks over these last few months for the Nats. That's got to change if the Nats are going to make the playoffs this season. You can't just rely on one guy in your rotation. You need at least two or three guys who are doing well for you. Now, speaking of Max, uh, I did a little Sabermetrics computation yesterday that I do want to share with you. And I tweeted this out. You can follow me on Twitter, at Al Gold. He actually talked about this a bit at the end of my show on Friday. Uh, so this was off what Max did on Thursday night, that 10-4 win over the Reds. On uh, I said Thursday night. I probably should say Thursday night, as the Nats like to say it. Uh, but two runs in six innings, ten strikeouts for Max in that game. So one win above replacement. When we talk about war, right, wins above replacement, one war, one win above replacement is estimated to be worth about 8 million dollars all right people far smarter than me came up with that but that's the basic idea war is based on an economic model you know trying to assign a singular numerical value to a player you know what is this guy worth you say all right how many war how much war does he provide you all right so that's that's the idea that's where war comes from you're trying to boil down a player's value or production to just one number. And as I always like to say, it's not gospel, but it's something that front offices make usage of all the time. It's something geeks like me in the analytics community make usage of all the time. All right. So one war is estimated to be worth eight million dollars. Max Scherzer now has produced twenty six point four war twenty six point four wins above replacement. If you use the baseball reference version over his three and a half seasons with the Nats. OK, twenty six point four war. You multiply that by the $8 million. That comes out to $211.2 million. So Max's production over his three and a half seasons with the Nets already comes out to $211.2 million. That surpasses the $210 million contract that he signed. That is ridiculous when you think about that. We're about halfway into... The Max Scherzer seven-year, two hundred ten million dollar deal, and already, if you go by WAR, he has outperformed the contract. Two hundred eleven point two million dollars worth of production. When I say Max hasn't just lived up to that deal, he has exceeded that deal. I'm not kidding. I'm not engaging in hyperbole. Like this is what I'm talking about. This is how good. This guy has been. And I wanted to point that out because, like, now, at this point, halfway into the deal, three and a half years into a 70-year contract, he's already outperformed that deal. Uh, if you're still wondering about Steven Strasburg, it does seem like we're a few weeks away from him returning from that cervical nerve impingement. Now, the recovery seems to be going pretty well. Uh, he threw from 90 feet on flat ground on Wednesday. Dave Martinez said that Stras is not going to need an extended stint on the disabled list. But as I said on the Steve Zabin show on Friday, define extended if you're Davy, okay? Because Strasburg still needs to play catch one more time. Uh, Then he needed to throw off a mound. Then he needed to make at least one minor league rehab start. So I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound to me like he's coming back tomorrow, okay? That sounds to me like, you know, you're like, I don't know, week and a half, maybe two weeks away still from Strasburg coming back. Now, the good news is that Strasburg's replacement in the Nats rotation, Tommy Malone, has looked pretty good, uh, and he was really good. And that 5-3 win over the Mets on Wednesday afternoon, one run in seven innings on nine strikeouts versus three hits and no walks. He threw 69 of 97 pitches for strikes. You know, one thing that Tommy did really well at AAA Syracuse this year, strikeouts versus walks, had an excellent strikeout-to-walk ratio, 113 versus 24. And you look at it so far for Malone, two major league starts this season, 15 strikeouts versus no walks in 12 innings. Now, if you remember his first start, he got off to a rough start, okay? Uh, Gave up three runs in the bottom of the first in that 10-3 win at Miami on July twenty sixth. But since that three-run bottom of the first, you're looking at one run in 11 innings for Tommy Malone. And I have no delusions of grandeur with this guy. Uh, He is a journeyman at this point. But he is a guy the Nats liked. Remember, the Nats actually drafted him originally. Uh, 2008 draft, the 10th round, then dealt him to Oakland in the Gio Gonzalez trade in December 2011, then brought back Tommy uh, this past December as a non-roster invitee to Major League Spring Training. Uh, but Tommy, so far, you got to say, been more good than bad, that's for sure. And so if you need to tread water a little while longer with him, Uh, With Strasburg on the mend, maybe just maybe that's not so bad. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. Up next, lots more on the Nats. How I now look back on some of the major events of these last seven days. What are, to me, three instances of Nationals? You better be right. Chin Music with Al Galdi. It's great to have you with us here on the Team 980 and the Team 980 app. This is Chin Music with Al Galdi. I just started laughing. I was like, <laughs> "Where's my ring?" On the Team 980 and the Team 980 app.
0: You're either in or you're in the way, and uh, I thought he was in the way. It, with uh, it, there was that's something that uh, you, you don't come back from. It uh, it was uh, it was a disrespectful act and. I didn't think it was. Uh, I thought I thought it warranted him uh, leaving the team. I didn't. I couldn't see how he would how he could face the rest of the rest of the teammates and the coaching staff and the manager again after being after such a selfish act in a twenty-five to one game.
1: Nationals President of Baseball Operations and General Manager Mike Rizzo on Wednesday on the designating for assignment of the DFA of Sean Kelly. I tell you, that From the Ninja, Mike Rizzo. That goes down in history. One of the all-time great clips. Yours truly is going to be playing for years to come. You're either
0: in or you're in the way. I thought he was in the way.
1: Exactly. That's how we feel about those who are not on board the chin music revolution, right? You are either in or you are in the way. But see, you're listening right now, so you are in. You are all in. And so we continue to plow forward. Great to be with you here talking Nationals, Orioles, and MLB. So I told you at the end of last segment, I have multiple instances here of you better be right for the Nationals this week. This has been a week, maybe unlike any other, since the franchise came here. There's been so much stuff going on, right? There's been so much uh, to get into, so much to talk about, so much to argue about. Uh, So it's been an event-filled week to be for sure. Here, to me, is the first instance of you better be right for the Nats this week. You better be right having basically done nothing on trade deadline day this past Tuesday. I do not at all like or understand what the Nats did on Tuesday, right? You had the non-waiver trade deadline at 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I said that I was fine with the Nats being sellers or buyers. I thought there were compelling reasons for both. I thought there was information that you really needed in order to decide which way the Nats should be going that we don't have access to. So I said, look, You can argue either way. Whatever you do, though, the Nats needed to do that in full force. Selling just a little or buying just a little or doing nothing represented to me the worst possible path. Well, of course, what did the Nats do? They took that route. They did nothing more than make that strange trade in which they sent Brandon Kinsler to the Cubs for a single-A reliever. Not even a starting pitcher, a reliever at the single-A level. So not only did the Nats not be aggressive sellers or buyers, but the one trade that the Nats did make was with the team that they're competing with in the National League in the Cubs. Again, very bizarre. Now, uh, Barry's Verluga, columnist for the Washington Post. I had him on my show earlier this week here on the Team 980. And he told me what he wrote about, and that is that Kinsler was shipped out because the Nationals believed that Kinsler was responsible for anonymous reports that painted the Nationals' clubhouse culture as, uh, shall we say, iffy. That does make the trade make some more sense. But that doesn't at all explain or justify why the Nats weren't all in as either sellers or buyers. The Nats have so many free agents to be, as so many of you know, right? Bryce Harper, Daniel Murphy, Matt Adams, Kelvin Herrera, Ryan Madsen, Sean Kelly. I mean, the list goes on and on. The Nats now are set to lose most or even all of these guys for nothing. And I just hate seeing that happen to a team. You have all of these guys, some of whom are very valuable assets, and you now are poised to lose them for nothing. And it's not just that. Because if you go the other route and you say, all right, well, the Nats don't believe in this season. They want to fight. They want to try to make the playoffs. Okay, that, that's a very admirable and defendable stance to take. But how can you have that stance and not do nothing when everyone around you was adding on Tuesday? Atlanta acquired starter Kevin Gausman from the Orioles. Philadelphia acquired catcher and ex-NAT Wilson Ramos from Tampa Bay for next to nothing, by the way. I mean, for all of the problems the Nats have had at catcher this season, that the arch rival Phillies got Ramos for a player to be named later or cash. You couldn't have made that move. I mean, I know Ramos is hurt, but still, man, you couldn't have made that move. Uh, Pittsburgh, the Pirates. The low-budget El Cheapo Pirates, shockingly, acquired starter Chris Archer from Tampa Bay. And I know the Pirates gave up a lot to get Archer, but still, the Buccos making the big move. Uh, Milwaukee, the Brewers, they got second baseman Jonathan Scope from the O's. The Dodgers, they acquired second baseman Brian Dozier from Minnesota. And this was just on Tuesday, okay? These teams, in many instances, have been fortifying prior to that deadline on Tuesday, prior to the day of Tuesday. All of these National League teams added all of these significant players, and yet the Nats, 52 and 53 at the time of the deadline, added nothing. I just didn't get this. I don't understand this. The way baseball works now, you are either all in or you are all out. If I, as I have said many times, winning like 83 games doesn't do you any good. There's no point in that. If you're going to win 83, you might as well win 70. Okay, and if you're gonna be all in, then you gotta go for it and sh- and strive for ninety, ninety five, a hundred wins, that kind of thing. And the Nats, as currently constituted, don't strike you as a team that's going to be hitting, you know, ninety, ninety two, ninety three wins. Now, maybe that changes. Maybe they catch fire. But I don't know how you could have just assumed that at the time of that deadline on Tuesday. And I really wonder, Mike Rizzo and the learners, were they all on the same page on Tuesday? Did Rizzo want to do one thing and the learners want to do another? Because you had so much out there about what the Nats could be doing. Are they going to trade Bryce? Are they going to trade a bunch of these relievers? And they end up doing next to nothing. And I really wonder the internal dynamics, the politics at Nationals Park. What was going on in the lead up to 4 p.m. this past Tuesday? Were Rizzo and ownership on the same page? We still don't know the answer for sure, but I think you're being awfully naive if you're not wondering about that. The second instance of you better be right for the Nats this week. You better be right having not traded away Bryce Harper and now being in danger of losing him via free agency for basically nothing. And this yes plays into what we just talked about. But Bryce of course is such a big item here. Whatever you think about Bryce Harper, you know he's going to command a lot of money on the open market as a free agent this coming off season. The Nats to me in not trading away Bryce, now have ramped up the pressure on themselves to re-sign this guy. Because the alternative would be that you lose him for basically nothing. We got confirmation this week via that statement from the uh, Nats managing principal owner, Mark Lerner, that the Nats are in fact a luxury tax-paying team this season. One of the penalties for being a luxury tax-paying team is that when you lose a premier free agent like Bryce, you get back not the usual first-round compensation pick. This is per the terms of the latest CBA, but a fourth-round compensation pick. You know, one of the things that's been out there over the years as well, if you lose a guy to free agency, uh, you do get back a nice draft pick so you can make something happen with that. You know, when the Nats lost Alfonso Soriano years ago to free agency, you know what they did with uh, one of the comp picks? Jordan Zimmerman. That's how they got Jay-Z. So, like, you can make do with that. But for Bryce to get a mere fourth round comp pick for him would be a disaster. And I'm not in love with paying Bryce 200, 300, 400 million dollars for all the reasons we've talked about uh, in recent months here. But whatever I think about him, I understand he is going to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars on the open market. Like there is extreme value there. And the the, uh, the analogy I've kept making here is you can't get done the way the Redskins got done in the Kirk Cousins saga. I want to be where I'm wanted. Exactly. The Nats cannot get kirked in this Bryce situation. You can't lose a guy worth so much money on the open market for basically nothing. The shame of the Kirk cha-cha-cha, whatever you think about him, is that the Redskins lost a guy worth so much on the open market for nothing more than this third-round comp pick that the Skins are going to be getting back. For the Nats to potentially lose Bryce for nothing more than a fourth-round comp pick here— that would be really bad. Now, maybe the Nats internally have come to the conclusion of we're going to spend whatever it takes to resign him. Maybe the Nats have come to the conclusion of it's not going to cost as much as people think it is to resign him. You know, there's been some talk that maybe Bryce wants to sign a deal short on years, high on AAV. So say like a three-year, you know, $90 million contract so Bryce can go back into free agency a few in a few years. That's possible. Maybe the learners are going to take that approach, but to lose him for basically nothing in free agency. That's the nightmare scenario. And the Nats now have set themselves up to potentially do that. And so once again, I say, you better be right about not having traded away Bryce. You know, like the, the, the justification for this to me would be if Bryce catches fire and you make, say, the NLCS or better, and then you lose him to free agency. Okay, then you can say, you know what, you didn't tr- trade him away. You lost him for basically nothing, but you made a deep postseason run. Anything short of that, and this is going to be a big time mistake if the Nats end up not keeping them. Third instance of you better be right for the Nats this week. You better be right having tossed away Brandon Kinsler and Sean Kelly from a bullpen that has been far from lights out. Look, you don't know, I don't know, if Brandon Kinsler truly was a leaker. Okay, we had that uh, very eyebrow raising report by Jeff Passon of Yahoo Sports. Earlier this week, I told you there was so much this week with the Nats, but basically talking about clubhouse dysfunction on the Nationals. And there is a belief that Kinsler was a leak for that report, was a source for that report. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. If it's true, then I understand the Nats trading him away, giving him away to the Cubs again for nothing more than a single A reliever. But you better be right on that, because Brandon Kinsler, I know he hadn't been great this year, but he is one of the better ground ball relievers in the majors. And to just discard somebody like that—a guy who you thought of enough of to resign this past off season—you know that could be something that comes back to bite you. And then with this Sean Kelly thing, I'm not here to tell you that Sean Kelly is Mariano Rivera. And I'm not here to tell you that the way he acted after he gave up that two run homer to Austin Jackson and the 25-4 route of the Mets on Tuesday night was right. I mean, Kelly slamming on his glove, uh, slamming his glove down on the mound was really bad. Uh, Kelly staring at that Nats dugout, presumably at Dave Martinez, really bad. Okay. And Sean Kelly deserved certainly a talking to. To me, if Davey Martinez wanted to really uh, establish his authority, as Cartman on South Park would say, and this has been called into questions. Verluga actually brought this up this week in a column in the Post how uh, the Nats dealt away these relievers, got rid of these relievers, uh, because Davey isn't up to the point yet of handling uh, clubhouse problems. This would have been a perfect opportunity for Davey to take Kelly aside and just light into him, you know, get in his face, you know, MF him up and down and all around, and maybe gain some more respect inside that Nats clubhouse but to DFA Sean Kelly to just dump Sean Kelly I hope the Nats don't come to regret that and I know Sean Kelly was horrible last year I totally get that he gave up one homer after another but no two things number 1 2 years ago 2016 Sean Kelly was an elite reliever in the majors when it came to generating strikeouts and number 2 Sean Kelly this season had rather quietly had a pretty good bounce-back season. You know, he went into that game on Tuesday night, and he was horrible in that game on Tuesday night. Let's make that clear, all right? But Kelly went into that game on Tuesday night with an ERA of 2.59 on the season. That's pretty good. And this Nats bullpen has been very up and down this season. Have you been paying attention to Kelvin Herrera? The lone major in-season acquisition that has been made by the Nationals, Kelvin Herrera. He has not been that good. You know, he gave up that one-out solo homer to Wilmer Flores in the top of the ninth uh, in that 5-3 win over the Mets on Wednesday afternoon, though Juan Soto nearly made the home run saving catch. Uh, but Herrera gave up that homer. He then gave up a double to Michael Conforto, then walked Jose Bautista before getting lucky, uh, inducing a first-pitch game-ending double play by Brandon Nimmo uh, for the save in the game, which tells you how uh, just worthless the save stat can be, uh, thanks to a really nice defensive play by Wilmer Defoe. But here's where you're at with Kelvin Herrera, all right? Since he came to the Nats, ERA of 430, whip of 1.77. You know, Kelvin Herrera, with Kansas City this season, had issued just two walks in 25 and two-thirds innings. Do you know that he's now issued seven walks in just 14 and two-thirds innings with the Nats? Two walks in 25 and two-thirds with the Royals. Seven walks in 14 and two-thirds with the Nats. He just has not been that good. Sean Doolittle remains out. Your best reliever this season by miles remains out. His recovery from that foot injury not uh, going nearly as rapidly as the Nats would have hoped. Are you in a position to just be tossing away guys like Kinsler and Kelly? Now, if they were internal problems, then I get it. I understand it, and I will not kill the Nats for that. But you better be right on that, and you better end up not missing these guys. Like, I think you might end up missing them. Because your bullpen has not been lights out. They, you know, the, the Nats do not have, like, the Yankees' bullpen. This has not been a lockdown pen uh, this season. It's been an up-and-down unit. And, uh, you know, especially with a guy like Herrera, more down than up when you look at what's gone on here lately. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi up next much more on the Nats maybe the most maddening aspect of the team this season the offense is it finally coming around chin music with Al Galdi here on the team 980 and the team 980 app Al Galdi's got more chin music I don't want to answer that right now because I know how many memes are going to be out there me with the bald head on the team 980 and the team 980 app shift is on
0: and he launches one high to right center see you later second deck and it's 10 to two on harper's 26th oh my goodness
1: heads up national league bryce harper is locked in like he hasn't been all season long 26 home run here tell me how far this one went this is a monster shot Matthews, Bob Carpenter, and F.P. Sant'Angelo during the Nationals' 10-4 win over Cincinnati on Thursday night. Last night's game postponed due to rain. A day-night doubleheader on this Saturday at Nationals Park. With the talk talking Nationals, Orioles, and MLB Saturday mornings 9 to 10. I'll go in-depth on the O's coming up next segment. But right now, some more on the Nats, who have won 6 of 8. And this stretch, to me, perfectly captures the Nats' offense this season. So, the Nats in the 6 wins have totaled 66 runs. The Nats in the two losses have totaled one run in 19 innings. Like, that's the Nats' offense this season. Feast or famine. The Nats' offense either parties like Charlie Sheen or stays at home reading a book and drinking apple juice. It's one extreme or the other. The same Nats' offense that was impotent over those final two games at Miami last weekend put up 25 runs against the Mets, this past Tuesday night that tells you all you need know about this Nats offense this season. Now, uh, there are good signs, right? I mean, Bryce Harper has been better lately and just need him to keep it going. But he has been good. His numbers since the all-star break are quite nice. That homer we just played for you. That was a moonshot that two out first pitch solo bomb uh, to the second deck in right center. At Nationals Park in the Nats three-run eighth on Thursday night. That's the Bryce we know and love. And also in that game for him, uh, he had a leadoff single and a two-out full-count bases loaded walk in that Nats six-run second. And he had another walk. So he's taking his walks. We still got to see the homers pick up. Uh, And I still want to see some more doubles from Bryce, but he is trending in the right direction. I've said I want that slugging percentage for Bryce back above 500. Like that, to me, is what you want to be focusing on. Forget about the batting average. I think way too much gets made of the batting average. Always know this about batting average as a stat. It doesn't take into account power. It doesn't take into account getting on base. Okay? All it does is look at hits. Slugging is a better thing to look at for me, and really OPS is, is the best of the bunch because that's taking everything into account. Hitting, how often you're getting on base via walks, your power, all that stuff. But Bryce's slugging right now is at 492. He really should be slugging over 500. When that gets into the 500s again, that's when you know that Bryce is back uh, to being what he can be. In case you are curious, the batting average is up to 230. Uh, Daniel Murphy's been better. So that's been good to see. Adam Eaton continues to get on base. I want to continue to give him credit for that. Trey Turner has been really good, too. You know, it has not been a banner last few weeks for Trey with him uh, getting benched for not running out that bunt. Ground out with him uh, having to make uh, the apology on Tuesday afternoon, holding back tears and apologizing for the uh, recently publicized offensive tweets from years ago. But on the field, Trey continues to produce. I mean, he was good on Thursday night. Two-out, two-run single on an 0-2 pitch to cap the Nats' six-run second. He had a one-out, two-run homer to left center in the Nats' three-run eighth. He had a walk. He had two stolen bases. He was really good in that two-game sweep of the Mets this week. You know, Trey Turner this season is number one among Nats' position players in wins above replacement per baseball reference. And it's actually not even that close. Like, it's Trey one and then you go a little ways, and then Anthony Rendon is at number two. But when you look at all that a ball player does, batting, base, running, and fielding, no Nationals position player has been better this season than Trey Turner. I mentioned Rendon. Been nice to have him back, right? He missed all four of the games at Miami due to uh, paternity slash family leave. But he was great in the two-game sweep of the Mets this week. And uh, obviously, a guy of his talent, you want in there as you're trying to make this charge toward the postseason. And then there is the 19-year-old, the wonderkind. Juan Soto. So Juan Soto on Thursday night that went over Cincinnati had three walks, including two walks in one inning. He walked twice and that national six-run second. One was a bases-loaded walk. That was the third three-walk game of the season for Soto. He joined Rusty Staub, owner of one of the great nicknames in sports history, La Grande Orange, as the only teenagers with three three three-walk games in a season in Major League history. That's crazy. That's nuts. Soto, it feels like every other game or every, you know, two or three games, he's doing something that is rarely, if ever, been done in Major League history. You know, Soto had that three-walk game just hours after being named National League Rookie of the Month for a second consecutive month. How about this when it comes to Soto, okay? Like, we know about the power. But to me, the most impressive thing about him is the plate discipline. This guy's ability to draw walks is so beyond his years. Juan Soto has 43 walks in 265 plate appearances this season. Turner, who again is having a good season, has 44 walks in 486 plate appearances. So Trey Turner has one more walk than Soto despite Trey having 221 more plate appearances than Soto has. That's crazy. Anthony Rendon, he has 33 walks this season and 365 plate appearances. So Soto has 10 more walks than Rendon has, despite Rendon having 100 more plate appearances than Soto has. Again, that's not right. That's not the way things should be. Juan Soto has been so good you cannot overstate how much of an offensive force he has been 306 batting average 419 on base percentage 554 slugging. Now while we're talking Soto, the Nats other highly touted Dominican outfield prospect coming into this season, Victor Robles. He is still on the Nats. We had multiple reports last weekend that the Nats had become willing to part with Robles in order to obtain the man they have been trying to obtain for months. Uh, and that is the Miami catcher, J.T. Real Muto. The Morelands had been asking for either Robles or Soto in a deal. The Nats, at least according to these reports last weekend, finally had relinquished, at least on Robles. Now, there has been pushback on this that it was not true. This, to me, was such a tough call because Real Muto is the best catcher in baseball, in my opinion. He can hit. He can run. He's one of the rare athletic catchers you'll ever see. He can field. Uh, and uh, Ro- um, uh, Real Muto is still a guy who's pretty young. You know, he, he doesn't become a free agent until after the 2020 season. But ultimately, I do think the Nats made the right call in keeping Robles and not trading him in a package for Real Muto. And yes, I do say this as someone who would have been very excited to see Real Muto come to DC. But Robles, to me, has a chance to be a superstar. And Real Muto, as good as he is, he is a catcher. And catchers traditionally do not age well. Like when a catcher loses it, he usually loses it rather quickly. You know, this happened with Matt Wieters. So JT Realmuto is great right now, but is he going to be great three, four years from now? That's a question. Robles, if he lives up to the hype, should be great for years to come. And Robles, of course, is back. We hit on this briefly last Saturday, but he came back from that scary-looking left elbow injury he suffered back on April 9th while trying to make a diving catch for Triple A Syracuse. And he's been quite good so far. Another good game uh, on Thursday. 5-4-12 inning win over the Pawtucket Red Sox. Two singles in RBI, one for two on steals, and an outfield assist. Not bad. Remember, number five prospect in baseball is Victor Robles, per the latest from MLB Pipeline. I asked our Nats insider, Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com, about Soto versus Robles. They still really like Robles. And here's the key, and this was even told to me before this season, so before we had seen Soto in the big leagues, that internally they felt like Soto was the better hitter of the two,
0: but Robles was the better player. And I think you're going to see when when he does come up. And and we saw
1: some of this last September. Defensively, there's no contest. Robles is far superior and really has the potential to be an elite uh, outfielder. And secondly, on the bases as well, you're going to see, um, you know, a guy who can make a real difference there. Well, you know, Soto is certainly not slow or anything like that, but base running is not what he's in there for. He's in there for his bat. We'll call that this week's Down on the Farm report, our weekly report on the Nationals minor league system, brought to you by the Potomac Nationals, the high A affiliate of the Nats. Visit PotomacNationals.com for the best promotional schedule. In minor league baseball. As we always like to say, if you want affordable, fun, family-friendly entertainment, a Peanuts game at Fitzner Stadium in Woodbridge is a great option. And it was not that long ago that the likes of Soto and Robles were killing it for the Peanuts in Woodbridge. Up next, I'm talking to Orioles. Why there's finally legit hope. If you're an O's fan, chin music with Al Galdi here on the Team 980 and the Team 980 app. Got more chin music.
0: Hasta la vista,
1: pelota. With Al Galdi. Hey, baby. Woo! I know you believe in me. That's all I ever need.
0: First and second, two down. 1 0 pitch breaking ball swung on and a high fly ball to center field and deep. Towards the Orioles' bullpen it goes. Smith leaps and it's gone. It got out of here. Just over the wall. So Jonathan Scope, who had his home run streak halted last night, starts another one. There's a three run shot and the Orioles' lead is now 9 3.
1: Jim Hunter has heard right here last Sunday afternoon. That's from the Orioles' 11 5 win over Tampa Bay. And that goes down as the final home run for Jonathan Scope as an Oriole. Well, I guess it's possible he's back at some point. But for now, let's say that's the final home run for Scope as an Oriole. So the O's got bludgeoned again last night, an 11 3 loss. At Texas in Game 2 of a four-game series. David Hess charged with seven runs, five earned in three and third innings. Donnie Hart gave up a grand slam to the first battery-faced Rugnet Odor. Uh, just awful. And all of this was off a 17-8 loss at the Rangers on Thursday night. Andrew Kashner in that game, 10 runs in one and two-thirds innings. So you've been outscored 28-11 over the first two games of this four-game set at Texas. Uh, the O's have the worst record in the majors, 33-77, and 77, 44 games below 500. The O's have the second worst run differential in the majors at minus 159. But the focus right now really is not what's going on on the field because the Orioles' 2018 season has been a disaster for months. The focus right now is the future. What's next? And let me say this as someone who has crushed the Orioles for more than a year for their oh-so-foolish ways Uh, that included not selling hard when they should have sold hard prior to the 2017 MLB non-waiver trade deadline. And that is that I do really like a lot of what we have been seeing and hearing from the O's in recent weeks. And, you know, all is certainly not forgiven, okay? But I do want to commend the O's for being very aggressive sellers over these last few weeks. I mean, you look at it. Manny Machado to the Dodgers, Zach Britton to the Yankees, Brad Brock to Atlanta, and then that double whammy on trade deadline day this past Tuesday, Kevin Gosman and Darren O'Day to Atlanta, and Jonathan Scope to Milwaukee. One of the things that I've been talking about and wondering about was whether the O's would have the chutzpah, the cojones, shall we say, to trade away, not just pending free agents like Machado, Britton, and Brock, but guys who also still had team control and thus more value, guys like gaussman Scope, and also Dylan Bundy. Well, you held on to King Kong Bundy, but you dealt away gaussman and Scope. The ultimate haul for these five trades of six players is the following: fourteen prospects, one major league player in Jonathan Villar, who no is not a great player, but he did have a really nice season two years ago, 2016, for the Brewers. Actually, led the National League that season with 62 stolen bases. And you also got back $2.75 million in international signing bonus slot money. And the hole, by the way, would have been even greater had Adam Jones consented to a trade. I actually was quite disappointed by that, that Adam would not consent as he needed to as a a 10-5 guy in baseball. But even without trading Jones, you got back a lot of stuff uh, for these six players in five trades. Now, who knows how many or if any of these prospects will pan out. I mean, it's worth noting the only truly highly touted prospect the O's got back out of all of this was the Cuban outfielder, Yuznel Diaz from the Dodgers in the Machado trade. But the O's at least have diversified their risk in getting back 14 prospects. And the international signing bonus slot money, again, $2.75 million, that is a really clear and encouraging sign that uh, Peter Angelos finally and mercifully is allowing the team to become a player again in the international market. One of the things that drove you nuts over the years as an O's fan was the extent to which the O's had just punted, had tapped out on the international market. You have teams like the Nats cultivating the Dominican to the tune of guys like Juan Soto and Victor Robles the, and the O's doing nothing in the oh-so-rich environment that is something like the Dominican Republic. Just Latin America in general when it comes to baseball players. So you have that. You know, the O's yesterday uh, announcing the signing of this kid, Moises Ramirez, a 16-year-old shortstop from the Dominican Republic. Again, who knows how good he is? Who knows how good he'll prove to be? But at least you're in the game. Again, the O's had not even been in the game for the longest time. So you have that. Uh, You have Dan Duquette actually now using the word rebuild or some version of it. You've had a promise uh, from the O's to beef up analytics, which you know we love to hear. Uh, a promise from the O's to beef up scouting. You know, the O's are saving about $35 million in salary with all of these trades. Uh, so you're going to have some money to use now to, you're not going to spend it on the roster. That's pretty clear. But they can spend it to beef up the front office. You also have something like the recent hirings, the Hall of Famers Brooks Robinson and Eddie Murray as special advisors in an effort to, to reach out to Orioles. Great. So all of this stuff, I think, is encouraging. You know, the O's do seem to have a plan, do seem to have somewhat of a direction here, and that's really good. Now, there's still a long way to go. Uh, the big item remains the front office. What's going to happen? Duquette's contract is expiring at the end of the season. Buck Showalter, your manager's contract, is expiring at the end of the season. You still have Brady Anderson with this very vague but seemingly prominent role in the Orioles' front office. Uh, you still have Peter's sons. John and Lou Angelos have been taking uh, more prominent roles. So how... The decision-making is going to work moving forward is a big-time issue. There's no doubt about that. But for the first time in a while... I do think that there's hope. It does seem like the O's internally have recognized some of where they've gone wrong, not participating in the international market, not being uh, more big on analytics and on having a beefed-up scouting department, You know, not having uh, reached out to all-time greats like Brooks and Eddie. Not that that stuff means a ton for the on-the-field product, but just from a PR standpoint, it's nice to have good relationships with all-time greats. You know, one of the tricky things with the O's for years has been their relationship with Cal Ripken Jr., You know, maybe slash probably the greatest player in the history of the franchise. And they have this very, like, lukewarm relationship with Cal. That's got to get patched up. It's got to get fixed up. Make people feel good again about being Orioles fans. Now, if there's one thing that did bother me this week, it was what Scope said. And assuming he's telling the truth here, this is very disappointing. Jonathan Scope said upon being traded that the O's had never even approached him about a contract extension. If that's true, that is absurd and inexcusable and just another sign of Of how bad the O's have been when it comes to getting out in front of these situations. So, Scope is set to be a free agent after the 2019 season. I know some people were disappointed that the O's traded him and Gausman. I got some tweets and emails regarding that. But here's the deal: you could not get Machadoed by Scope. You know, just like I say, the Nats can't get Kirked by Bryce. The O's could not get Machadoed by Scope. Uh, they couldn't put themselves in a position next season to where he wasn't going to stay here. And now you had to trade him with his value having gone down because the team that's going to be getting him via trade is only getting him your multi-month rental. Uh, Scope is a guy who blossomed offensively last season. He has become a solid defensive second baseman. And while he was really bad for much of this season, he had caught fire. Seven home runs in nine games for the O's. Uh, The O's, as they were with Machado in his contract situation, needed to do one of two things with scope. You either trade him while he still has value or you sign him to a long-term extension. That the O's didn't even explore doing this with scope drives me nuts. I don't know how you go about running a ball club and not even talking to a guy who's one of your more promising players about a contract extension. And the O's weren't nearly aggressive enough with Machado in this regard, weren't nearly aggressive enough in trying to lock up Machado a few years back. When the team should have. The O's were asleep at the wheel when it came to these two guys. And that's inexcusable. Like that kind of passive thinking is what kills teams. And all you can hope is that moving forward, the O's are better at this stuff. Whoever is running the front office moving forward has got to be a forward thinker. They've got to be more aggressive in trying to lock up guys. Like look at Bundy. You haven't dealt Bundy. If you really believe in him, then sign him now. All right? Sign him now and don't go through the same thing with Dylan that you went through with Machado and with Scope. But at least as we speak today, I do think there is some reason for optimism here. And we haven't said that often when it comes to this team over the last year or so. All right, that will do it for you and me this morning. I want to thank all of you who have tweeted and emailed. I want to thank our producer, Aaron Oster. This has been Chin Music with Al Galdi. I'll talk to you on Monday as I'm in for Cooley and Kevin once again, 6 a.m. until 10 a.m., so a whole lot of time for you and me to talk baseball, Redskins, and a whole lot more. Have a great rest of your weekend.